Let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8 this evening. Luke chapter 8. It is fitting that this evening we're going to be studying about a storm. And uh, Jesus is going to take his disciples out into the boat, and they're going to come across a great storm. And their response to that is something that should spark some thinking on our part and and challenge us as to how they ought to have responded and how they actually did respond. Because to whom much has been given, much more will be required. We are people who have been entrusted with much, a great treasure, this mystery of the gospel that was once, for, for previous ages, it was hidden, but now it's made known to us through His Word. And what we do with this treasure is critical. Will we hide it in a hole so that it doesn't get taken away? Like the, one, the man with one talent? Well, Master, I didn't want it to, to get stolen, so I just put it, I hid it. Or will we invest it in our own life, life and in the li- lives of others so that when our Master comes back, He sees that our investment has grown? We have this great treasure that has been invested in us, and we have something to do with it. And so how we live following our conversion matters to God. Last week we saw that it is critical how we hear that there are four kinds of soils or four kinds of hearts, we could say, four kinds of responses to the Word of God. It's critical that we respond rightly because in verses 16 through 18, how we hear will be made known. And then in verses 19 to 21, we saw that hearing properly means following Christ, which is to listen to His Word and to obey it. It's not enough to to just hear His Word. How we respond to His Word is critical and how we respond will be made evident in the difficulties of life. And here's a challenge for the disciples now that they've had that, that truth communicated to them. They're going to go out into the boat with Jesus and they're going to be challenged with this storm. And how they, how they responded to what they listened to is going to determine how they react out here in the storm. So let's read our passage here. It's actually two stories that we're going to cover. Verses 22 through 39, chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel. This is the Word of God. Now in one of those days, Jesus and His disciples got into a boat and He said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, He fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke Him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And He said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to to one another, Who then is this, that He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey Him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds 
and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him, to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. How you respond to God's Word is critical, and how you respond to God's power is critical to your faith. That's what we're going to see today. How you respond to God's power is critical to your faith. And really, it's connected to how you respond to His Word. In Luke um, 8, verses 4 to 21, we saw that it's not enough to hear. We must respond rightly to what we have heard. Here, we see it's not enough to see God's power clearly at work. That's what's going to happen with this city that witnesses this great miracle of these demons being cast out. And it's not enough to hear. It's not enough to see God's power. We have two reactions to the power of Christ and two, actually not two, dissimilar reactions. That is, two somewhat similar reactions. Verses 22-25, through the disciples respond to the power of Christ with fear and confusion. The disciples respond to the power of Christ with fear and confusion, verses 22 to 25. Jesus here leads His followers into difficulty. In verse 22, notice who sends them into the storm. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and His disciples got into a boat, and He said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. So Jesus is the one who is leading them into this storm. This, this apparently happens the same night as when Jesus had talked to them about the parable of the soils. We had the parable of the soils we had just read, and then the parable of the light in the house, and then the, uh, Jesus talks about who His mother and brothers are there in verses 19-21. Apparently that same night, He says, Alright, disciples, let's go. Let's go out into the boat. And what that tells us is that sometimes Jesus leads us into a place of deep desperation, doesn't He? Sometimes Jesus leads us to a place where we would say, why would we ever go there? Why would we go into a storm? We'll come back to that idea uh, as we conclude this evening. But in verse 23, it's even worse. It's not only does He lead them into the storm, but He seems to be unconcerned. Look at verse 23. But as they were sailing along, He fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke Him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. In other words, do you care about us? I think in Mark's Gospel, that's what they asked. Do you you not care that we're perishing? 
The fact that Jesus could sleep on a boat during the middle of a storm is significant. And the fact that he can and sleep on a boat uh, of a storm of this magnitude is extremely significant. This storm, I believe, is of great magnitude because the, the disciples believe that they're going to die. Do you not care that we are dying? And do you remember what the occupation of several of these disciples was? What was it? Fishermen. Had they seen storms before, do you think? Absolutely. They, they knew the storms that come on the Sea of Galilee. They knew what it took to get back to the shore. And yet, they're out in this boat and they recognize as professional fishermen, we're not going to make it. We're going to die. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's sleeping. So this, this and, and by the way, just notice how, how serious this, how severe this storm is. At the end of verse 23, they began to be swamped and to be in danger. That is, the waves were crashing so hard that they were coming over the sides of the boat and starting to sink the boat. And you can just picture Jesus off to the side just being jostled back and forth and yet He's still sleeping. Why would He be so tired that He could sleep like that? Well, obviously He's got a lot of pressure on Him to heal and to teach and they're just they're, they're drawing on Him, on His power. Okay, Don't think of that in a mystical way. But, but they're drawing on His ability and His leadership 24 hours a day practically. It's hard for Him to get away even to pray. And yet He does often. And so he goes without sleep. The storm is severe um, because uh, further because it says there in the middle of the verse, verse 23, a fierce gale of wind which uh, f- comes from two Greek words that could be translated a hurricane of wind. Okay, A hurricane of wind. Pretty much what happened tonight on the way here, right? It was a hurricane of wind and, and he's sleeping. The boat is filling up and, and, um, and he seems to be unconcerned. So here's Jesus leading them into a place where there's a difficult experience for them and, and He seems to be unconcerned. Have you ever been there in your life where God leads you to a place where it's difficult? And then, on top of that, it seems like He stands off, almost aloof or unconcerned about your problem. This is Jesus here uh, appearing to do that same very thing in verses 22 and 23. But I would suggest to you that Jesus does this. He leads us into dif- difficulty in order to test our faith. Verses 24 and 25. The disciples here don't know what to think. Verse 24, they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they, and the, they stopped. That is, both the wind and the waves. And it became calm. And He said to them, Where is your faith? Now, uh, the fact that the wind stops is significant. Jesus has power over the wind. But remember that even if the wind were to stop, what's going to happen to the waves? How long does it take the waves? Do they stop instantaneously once the wind stops? No, it's going to take a long time. But but Mark's Gospel records that it was completely still. In fact, uh, some of the words that are used there in Mark's Gospel and his record of it, he, he says, peace be still. That is, not just the wind, but the waves die down. So this is a great miracle on the part of Jesus. And notice their response at the end of verse 25. And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey Him? So, after rebuking the storm, Jesus 
rebukes the disciples here at the end, at, at the first part of verse 25. Where is your faith? What kind of faith do you have? He's not saying you have no faith. None of you are believers. None of you are true followers of me. That's not what he's saying. In chapter 8, verses 11 to 15, we saw that faith properly responds to the hearing of Christ's message is a faith that listens and puts things into practice. And so Jesus is not questioning the um, the quantity or, or the quality. He's not he's not questioning the, the the presence of their faith. That is, you don't have any faith at all. But he's he's really questioning the quality or the quantity of their faith. Right? There's no substance to what you're believing in. What are you believing in? So where is this? I mean, you know me. You've seen my works. You've heard my teaching. And you should have trusted me. But how could they trust him when the storm is raging and he is sleeping? I mean, how could they trust him to calm the storm, really? How did they because they didn't know. Jesus didn't say, Hey, let's get in the boat. We're gonna have a huge storm and don't worry, I'm going to make it calm. It's gonna be fine. Jesus didn't say that. So they didn't know the outcome of this trial, did they? And so because they didn't, what they what were they supposed to trust in? Right? How could they trust that Jesus would calm the storm if they didn't know He would? I mean, they just saw not too long ago that John was still in prison, right? And Jesus is not releasing him from prison. So what are they supposed to trust in? In, in, in other words, in what was their faith supposed to be? Was their faith supposed to be in the outcome? And this is an important question for us as well. For me, I often find myself trying to trust in a desired outcome. And what happens is when I do that, when I'm praying in that way, not that we shouldn't pray for desired outcomes, but when my confidence is in the desired outcome, what happens? I'm disappointed, right? Because the outcome that I want is not always what Jesus wants for me. Maybe for you, you're praying for a promotion at work because you know it will help make ends meet at home, help you be able to give better. And and for months and even years, you pray for a promotion, but each time a position becomes available, it seems to be, get filled by someone else. Maybe it's your health. And you keep praying for the desired outcome of God removing this burden from you, but it never happens. And the poor health continues month after month and year after year and maybe even gets worse. Maybe the desired outcome is a is a restored relationship. You desire to have this relationship restored and so you pray for this desired outcome and you try to muster up enough faith because Jesus says that if you have enough faith, right, as much as even a mustard seed, you'll be able to have your prayers answered. But it never happens. Can I suggest to you that when our faith is in the desired outcome, we have our faith in the wrong object. The object of your faith ought not to be the desired outcome. That's not the object of your faith. For the disciples, the storm going away. For us, the promotion, the removal of sickness, the restored relationship. That's not the object of our faith. You know, we, we hear this, this loose theology all the time in churches. It is, you know, you just have enough, have enough faith. Just need to have faith. Well, faith in what? Right? If we have faith in the desired outcome, we will be disappointed. But here's what 
God expects of us, here's what Jesus expects of us, that our faith ought to be in Christ. Because when your faith is resting on the desired outcome, you will be disappointed often. But here is the great truth that we can learn tonight. When your faith is in Jesus, it doesn't matter the desired outcome. It doesn't matter if you lose your job or you find out you're in stage 4 cancer or if your relationships get worse because Jesus is still there and Jesus is still on your side. And He knows the outcome. He knows what is best for you. Now, that doesn't exempt me from trusting in His power. We might think, well, I didn't think He could restore that relationship anyway. right? And that's not what, what we should be doing. Okay? I'm just going to trust in Jesus. And we, try, we, we can over-spiritualize this and say, I'm going to trust in Jesus and no matter what happens. No, God expects us to trust in His power that He can actually accomplish it. Like with the, the three young men in, in the book of Daniel, right? Um, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar says that, that he's going to throw them into the fir- fiery furnace because they have failed to bow down to, to the idol, they say, you know, we, we know, we know that our God can save us. Desired outcome. But if not, we still will not worship your false god. We still will not bow down to it. Okay, Let, let's try to translate that over into our lives. Okay, we know that God can produce the desired outcome that we want—the removal of the sickness, the, the the promotion at the job, the restored relationship. We know God can do it. He has the power to do it. We trust in Him, in His ability. But if not, it's okay. Because God is still there. Jesus is still on my side. Jesus is working out everything for the glory of Himself and for the good of us. Again, Luke here in verse 25 helps us as readers ask the same question that we have been asking. and It is is this. Look at the end of the verse. Who then is this that He commands even the winds and the water and they obey Him? We're asking the same question as we have been asking as we've been seeing His power. It is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? The fact that they're amazed shows us that they don't quite understand who Jesus is. Even when we are confident that Jesus is there with us, we might still wonder if He cares, right? Is He, is he concerned about what's going on? And, and the point is, of this, this story is that Jesus is there and He cares. And their faith should have led them to trust Him to either, listen to this, be cared for by being removed from the storm or to be cared for by being killed in the storm. Okay, Their faith should have had them trusting in Jesus no matter the desired outcome, but believing that He could bring about the desired outcome. Do you see? So, the disciples respond to the power of Christ with fear and confusion. And then secondly, the crowd of witnesses respond to the power of Christ with fear and rejection. Not a dissimilar reaction. The disciples have all of this revelation and yet they respond with fear and confusion. The very first time that these people hear, they respond with a very similar reaction. Fear and However, it's, it's coupled with rejection. They actually send Jesus away. So here, 
We have Jesus speaking to the demon-possessed man. After the storm calms, they arrive at the region that was much more remote. It was a Gentile region. And we know that because the farmer is raising what kind of animals? Okay, are we paying attention? Okay, good. Pigs. And the name of the region was, in verse 26, the Gerasenes. Now, you're not going to find that city probably um, on your map in the back of your Bible because scholars are unsure exactly where this location was. In fact, the specific location of Gerasa, the city, was about 35 miles southeast. But we know that this happened by the, the Sea of Galilee, the lake there, because when the herd of swine run and they go down the cliff, where do they end up? End up in the, in the water, right? In the Sea of Galilee. So um, what's most likely, scholars have all sorts of ideas of where this is, but most likely the city of Gerasa, which is 35 miles southeast, of the Sea of Galilee has probably a another location, a small tract of land that's right there on the Sea of Galilee that they own and, and where these people would have been uh, farming. Well, when Jesus reaches the land, immediately after the storm, they reach this land in this small tract of land called probably owned by Gerasa. They reach the land and notice what the demon-possessed man does. When he came out, Jesus came out onto the land. He was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Well, this man is is a terrifying sight. He was naked, living in the cemetery, and... Um, the reason for this is because he's controlled by this legion of demons, that his body is possessed by satanic creatures. And the plea of the demons is that, that, that they ask Jesus. They know immediately who he is. And they, they bow down before him and ask him immediately um, you know, not to torment him, not to torment them. You see, they recognize that they're in deep trouble. It would be like a... Uh, a ten-year-old bully picking on your little five-year-old bro- brother. You know, he's flicking his ear and punching him and and hitting him, calling him names, and then all of a sudden, your dad walks in, and your dad's a big, intimidating character, and he walks in next to to this bully who's a ten-year-old, and he realizes he's in trouble. Okay, that, that's what's going on here with the demons. The demons are tormenting this man, and immediately they see Jesus walk up. And they realize they're in deep trouble. And they're going to have to answer to Him. It's only a matter of time before they get what is coming to them. And the torment that they have, we really don't know what, what they're fearful of. Notice at the end of verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. And we don't really find out what they're afraid of until verse 31. They were imploring Him, so the demons were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the, the abyss. They knew that Jesus was not going to allow them to stay in the man. And so their concern was, where are we going to end up? And what they didn't want to do was end up in the abyss. The abyss is a place that already that currently holds demons, that some, some demons have, have um, sinned in a great way, and they are basically there, incarcerated, um, until, really, the tribulation. And... Um, uh, Actually, I, I think they're actually incarcerated eternally. They're going to be, go from there into the, the uh, eternal destruction. And so they're saying, listen, don't, don't, don't send us to the abyss. 
But we learn about this man. Not only is he demon-possessed, but, but this man has supernatural strength. Look at the end of verse 29. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon <coughs> into the desert. We have a man here with supernatural strength, not because he was working out or something, but because these demons empowered him with this. He was able to break the shackles several several times. They could not contain him. And Jesus commands the demons to come out of him in verse 29. He commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man in verse 30. Jesus uh, asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for the many demons had entered him. Okay, so Jesus is commanding him to, to release these demons. Before we, we get there, verse 30 tells us his name, Legion. Legion is typically a group of 6,000 soldiers, which, which puts us in perspective because we saw Mary Magdalene was, ha, had how many demons removed from her? In chapter 8, verse 2, it was seven, right? She had seven demons, and we're thinking, wow, that's significant. We don't really hear about people with more than one demon, and she had seven, and yet this, this man is full of a whole legion of demons. We'll see that it actually results in the death of, of at least 2,000 pigs. Um, so, so at the very least, I think there are at least 2,000 demons within him. Well, the people respond to the power of Jesus in verses 34 to 39. Notice the the drastic change. Uh, Well, let's look at 32, verse 32. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. According to Mark's Gospel, it's 2,000. Verse 33, And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now notice the, the, the drastic change of the man. Once... Once he was uh, indwelled by thousands of demons, now look at him. Verse 35, The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out. So before, verse 27, he was possessed with demons. Now the demons have gone out of him. Then look at verse 35. And they found him sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed. And what was he before? Remember in verse 27, he had been without clothing for a long time. So before he was without clothing, now he is clothed. Verse 27 also tells us that he did not live in a house, but lived in the tombs. Notice verse 39, return to your house. So Jesus is making a drastic change here. When, when Jesus initially arrived there on the boat, he, this man possessed by the demons, immediately fell down and and shouted at Jesus in verse 28. Here in verse 35, we find him sitting at the feet of Jesus, showing his humility. And he is willing to learn from him. As we're going to see in chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, remember Mary, Martha's just frustrated because she's doing all the work. And what's Mary doing? She's sitting down here, listening to Jesus. You know, make her work. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take that away from her because she's doing the one needful thing. She's doing the important, the necessary thing. And that's what this man is doing. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, humbly listening to Him. In verse 29, he was able to break shackles. He was uncontrollable. In verse 35, he is in his right mind. And it seems to me that that something more than just an expulsion of demons has happened. It seems to me that he actually has been healed of his spiritual death. That is, that Jesus has brought about to him spiritual life. Look at verse 36. Those who had seen it 
reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. That phrase there comes from one Greek word, which means to save. It's also used in chapter 8, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be made well, be saved. That's the same word that is translated made well in verse 36. So I think that that this is genuine salvation that happens on the part of this man. And the re, a further reason for that, further proof, is found in verse 38. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away saying, return to your house. So, so what's this man wanting to do? He wants to be a full-time disciple just like the other twelve. right? He wants to come along and, and enjoy just traveling with him and learning from him. But Jesus said, no, you need to stay here and proclaim to, to everyone what I have done here. But notice how he says it. Instead of, tell everybody the great things I have done. Notice what the text says. Return to your house and describe what great things, not I, but God has done. What is Jesus saying about Himself here, subtly? He's saying that He is God. This is God who did this work. Jesus is revealing something that His disciples could have easily overlooked. While the rest of the people respond, he responds with salvation, but the rest of the people respond with with uh, rejection, really. Verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And uh, people went out to see it, verse 35. And then verse 36, Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. So immediately this starts to spread, this news starts to spread. I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, how, how would this this news stay stay quiet when 2,000 pigs are killed. This is a huge uh, loss, economic loss. And that seems to be their main concern. Not that this man was healed. Not that this man is now brought to a, a, a proper state here, but, but that, that they had this huge, huge economic loss. And the reason I think that is because of verse 37. And all the people of the country, the garrisons, and the surrounding districts, so... Once this news spread, they all come and ask Jesus to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear, and He got into a boat and returned. Now, it could be that they were superstitious, and they recognized His supernatural power, and they were afraid that it it might do some damage to them. But I think more likely that this is a fear of economic loss, because Mark's Gospel seems to indicate that in, in his record of it. And it seems to them that Jesus is more interested in saving people than in the, the rest of the people's material prosperity, right? Jesus saves a person. He, he saves him physically and spiritually, I think. But at the expense of what? 2,000 pigs. Okay, I, I don't know how much pigs are going for. Anybody have an idea? We've got a couple farmers in here. How, rough, roughly 500,000 bucks, you think? Maybe a thousand. Let's say a thousand, okay? So 2,000 pigs, we're talking, um, we're talking two, two million, right? So two million dollars is not a small thing in, in um, you know, ancient Israel, in a Gentile region, even if it's $500 a pig, it would be, um, it'd be a million dollars. So, so, they obviously are concerned about their future material loss. And this is not surprising, should not be surprising to us. Do you remember when 
Paul and Barnabas came in in Acts chapter 16, and you have this magician who is using this this young girl who is possessed by a demon, and she's able to tell the future in some way. She's doing some kind of um, some kind of demonic ability, and uh, and and Paul and Barnabas heal the woman, and immediately what's the the, the master say about the the young girl, right? Paul and Barnabas, you get out of here. We we don't want you here anymore. You're, you're messing up my gig, right? I don't think that was the word they used, but but I just trying to you know just trying to make it current for us. All right. So in verse 37, they ask him to leave, but what they don't re- realize is something that the disciples will later realize that Jesus has the very words of life, and that those who are without those words will even have. Look back to verse 17. They will even have the small amount that they do have taken from them. Nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be made known. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from them. They did not realize what they were doing. But in their preservation, their desire to preserve their economic stability... They were turning away the very means of eternal life. Let me conclude with an observation and two principles that we can draw from this passage. Number one, the observation. Did you notice that one human life is more valuable than 6,000 animals? One human life is more valuable than, I should say, 2,000, but but could be up to 6,000 animals. Okay, I I don't know if we have any vegetarians or vegans in here, but... But don't buy into the lie that killing chickens and cows so that you can have dinner is a bad thing. Okay, Human life is more valuable than animal life. That's why God has allowed for us to be able to kill animals in order for us to sustain our life. That's because we are made in the image of God. Animals are not. Okay, When animals die, they don't go into doggy heaven or whatever. Right? They just die. Not that God is unconcerned about them, but, but they're not made in His image. They don't have the ability to worship God in a, in a self-conscious way. All right, so one human life is more valuable than 6,000 animals. Now, two principles. First, it is not enough to hear God's message. It is not enough to hear God's message. Uh, uh, this is a principle that we've just been reminded of over and over again in Luke's Gospel. When you compare the responses of the disciples to the storm and the garrisons after the casting out of the demons, it's amazing that the responses are not that much different. One is a confused fear that leads them to try to understand more. The other is a perplexed fear that leads them to send Jesus away. But the point is that the Gerasenes only saw the works of Jesus how many times? Once. This is the first time. Yet the disciples have been following Him for months and seeing great miracles and hearing great teaching. And what we learn from this again is what we're reminded of is that it's not enough to hear God's message. We must respond to it rightly. We must confidently trust that Jesus has the power to bring about the desired outcome. But even if He doesn't, that's okay. Because our faith is in Him alone and so we can be confident in Him that no matter where He leads us, um, He's going to to bring about great glory. The second second principle is this. Suffering first, then glory. Suffering first, then glory. Jesus leads us often into difficulty 
because on the other side of that difficulty is an opportunity for us to see God's glory. And we don't get the glory. We don't get to enjoy the full, uh, unshielded glory of God until we first go through this life of suffering. And for the disciples, they could not see this glimpse of the glory of God in the country of the Gerasenes until they first went through suffering. Do you know what happens immediately after the healing of the Gerasene demoniac? Do you know what Jesus and His disciples do? Look at verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed Him, for they had been waiting for Him. Do you know where they went? They went back to the other side of the lake. So, so here's the, the geographics of what had just happened. Jesus is over here teaching about the parable of the soils and, and uh, teaching them how important it is to listen. He says, let's get in the boat. They go through this storm. In order to get to the country of the Gerasenes, they get to the country of the Gerasenes. He heals the man and leaves and goes back. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's taking them through a difficult time in order to show them a glimpse of His glory over here. In other words, could Jesus have taken them there apart from a storm, apart from difficulty? Absolutely, He could have. But He didn't. And I think that's very similar to what happens in our lives. Can Jesus get us to a place where we can get a better glimpse of His glory apart from any trial? Can Jesus do that? Absolutely. But you know, He often doesn't, does He? I don't want to over-spiritualize the story and you know make the boat the journey in your life and the storm, you know your trial. But what we ought to do, ought to see here is that Jesus knows exactly what He's doing, and He's leading you along to a place where you can better get a glimpse of His glory. And if that means that you have to walk through, or in this case, sail through a difficult trial, then that's okay. Because at the other end, we're going to see something that we would not have seen otherwise. And you know what? During your difficulty, Jesus knows exactly what's going on and He cares, even if it feels like He is in the boat sleeping. Jesus is there and He's concerned. So your job situation, Jesus knows about it. Your health, your relationship conflict, your unmet desire. Jesus knows about it and He cares. And He is very likely leading you to a place where you can more clearly see His glory. Is Jesus worthy of our full confidence? Is He not worthy of our trust? No matter the outcome. No matter what, how it all ends up. Jesus is there. He's on our side and He cares. And He's probably leading us to a place. He like, As a Christian, He is leading you to a place where you can more clearly see His glory. And that's exactly where we need to be. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the promise that You have that You will never leave us nor forsake us. Thankful, Jesus, that You have promised the same thing, that You will be with us all the way till the end. And Holy Spirit, thankful that You reside in us as a down payment of our inheritance. And we know that You are always with us as well. And so we're thankful that we are not alone 
in the difficult times in life. And we're thankful that, that you care. That you are not unconcerned about what's going on in our lives. In fact, you know exactly what's going on and you are leading us to a place where we can more clearly see your glory. The disciples got to see it twice. Once by seeing the calming of the storm and once by seeing the healing of the demoniac. And so we praise you for the times in which you bring us through the difficulties. And on the other side, we're able to see you more clearly. We're able to see that you walked with us all the way and that you were there. Lord, we admit that we groan in these bodies and in this creation along with the rest of creation for a time when Jesus will restore all things to Himself and bring things back to their Edenic state. And we pray that that time would come quickly. In order for that to happen, we need our Savior to come and rapture us. Lord, we pray that it would be quickly. Certainly, we, we plead for those who are lost and those whom You have chosen. We, we beg for, for those to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even through our testimony. But Lord, we also recognize that, that, that we are not meant for this world. We're meant for the next. And so we pray that You would hold us up in the midst of difficulty. Lord, certainly there are great trials that people are going through, even under the sound of my voice. And I pray that You would just strengthen them and encourage them and help us to have our confidence in Jesus even though we don't know the outcome. Even if the desired outcome is not brought about. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.